Thanks very much indeed. Delighted to be here. I hope to be minimally coherent after seven hours in a plane from Boston to here. And if I'm not, I am sure somebody will let me know. <laughs> I do apologize also for having brought this awful thing, a PowerPoint presentation. But the Vice Chancellor assures me that in the world of science, it is required. And among economists, it's not required, but it helps to show pretty pictures, right? Let me tell you what I hope to talk about, if I can get that little thing to disappear. Maybe not. Oops. Well, we'll ignore it. I hope to accomplish three things in the next 40 minutes. First, share a few thoughts on why it is that fiscal policy is so bad in so many places. And of course, in Europe today, that is not a trivial issue, both in the UK and in the rest of Europe. I'm going to Ireland next week, and in Ireland, certainly, that is a big issue. And what is in Europe, sort of a new hot thing, has been in Latin America, emerging markets more generally, an old hot thing. That is to say, we've had decades of very bad fiscal policy, and we've done a fair bit of thinking about why that might be so. Then I want to move on and tell you a little bit. Why is this not working? Um, am I doing something wrong? I am pushing the arrow, but nothing is happening. Uh, oh, here, let's try one thing. Escape, and now we'll, we'll go. Nope, I guess not. Ah, uh, there you go. You. Let's see. No, but that's not the first slide. Let's see. There we go. So I want to talk a little bit about the big issues. In particular, why it might be that um, there's a deficit bias often in the fiscal policy of many countries, and why it is so heavily pro-cyclical. Expenditure is so heavily pro-cyclical. Governments seem to spend more when times are good, and they seem to spend less when times are bad, which is exactly the opposite of what theory would prescribe, and is exactly the opposite of what common sense would prescribe. Then I want to talk a little bit about how Chile has dealt with this. And let me make clear at the outset, this is not meant to be part of an advertising campaign for the Chilean government, neither the current one nor the previous one. So if I do stray too far in that direction, again, please stop me. But I will show a few pretty pictures telling you what things went well in Chile and where things might have gone better in some dimensions. And then, I, last but not least, I want to reflect on this experience and use it to think about what kinds of fiscal institutions and what kinds of fiscal rules you may want to have in countries at large, either emerging countries or developed countries. And of course, again, this is a hot topic. Um, to go back to Ireland, Ireland is supposed any day now to send to the EU its proposal for a new set of budget institutions. So the experience of countries like Chile may have some bearing on what you may want to do, what works, what doesn't. So what are the issues? If I First, deficit bias, and then pro-cyclicality. What does economic theory tell you about the deficit of a country, the fiscal deficit, that is? You should have a deficit when times are bad, you dissave, 
you should have a surplus when times are good. You save and you accumulate for the rainy day. But on average, you should have neither. That is to say, on average, you should not have debt that is going up or going down. However, it is quite common to see exactly the opposite. If you plot the debt over GDP of any country, you will see that it is very rare the country. Chile is one example. Sweden is another where debt over GDP does not have a secular trend, where it rises over time. And this violates some basic economic theory. So one question is, why the hell is it that we have deficit bias so often? Second question is why fiscal policy is so pro-cyclical. Implicit in what I just said a minute ago, fiscal policy ought to be counter-cyclical. If you save in bad times, then you're spending, sorry, if you save in good times, you're spending less when there's a boom which allows you to spend more when you have a recession. But again, in many countries, both rich and poor, developing and developed, you see exactly the opposite. You tend to see lots of expenditure when times are good, too little expenditure when times are bad. And let me show you one picture, which is my favorite picture to make this point. This is Mexico in the 70s and Mexico in the 80s through 1990. The green line is the price of oil, and the red line is the budget deficit of the federal government of Mexico. Theory would tell you that if Mexico did what the textbook prescribes, you would have these two things move in exactly opposite directions. When the price of oil is high, you're rich, and therefore you have a... Um, big surplus, you save, and the opposite happens when the price of oil is low. On the contrary, what happens in Mexico is whenever Mexico gets rich, the price of oil goes up, well, Mexico runs a bigger deficit. And that violates you know, every basic postulate of modern economic thinking about macro. So the question is, why do countries like Mexico do this? And there are at least two families of explanations for this. One family of explanations has to do with economics, in particular with finance. It says that a country like Mexico can not borrow as much as it would like because it is constrained. It, if it goes to world markets and it wants to borrow, world markets would not lend Mexico as much as Mexicans would desire, as much as the Mexican government would desire. So Mexico faces a borrowing constraint. The borrowing constraint is tight when Mexico is poor and the price of oil is low, and there Mexico bumps against the borrowing constraint and can't spend as much as it wishes. But when times are good, what happens? The price of oil is high, and suddenly Mexico seems creditworthy. So precisely when Mexico doesn't need it, every investment banker from London and New York comes knocking on your door and says, here's money for you to spend. And if fiscal institutions are such that the offer is accepted, then you're going to have a deficit that moves with the price of oil in exactly the way I show. So this is simply an application of the principle that financial markets offer you money when you don't need it, and financial markets take money away from you when you do need it. I, I lived through this personally back in the early 1980s, and my first visit to the Chilean finance ministry, I was the fellow in charge of dealing with investment banks. I was the international finance coordinator. 
And when the price of oil shot up in the early 1990s, I spent all of my time receiving you know, those, those very stable institutions that no longer exist, like Lehman Brothers, uh, who'd come knock on my door saying, Chile is doing so well, you know, here is a loan for you know, a thousand, you know, a hundred million dollars or five hundred million dollars or something like that, which Chile back then did not take. Mexico did take that. So that's one story. That's the financial story. But there's also a political economy story, and there has to be one, because the fact that investment bankers come and offer you money doesn't necessarily mean that you are well advised to take the money. So the question is, why do governments choose to spend more in times when the financing constraint is lifted? And for that, you need a political story. And there are many versions of this story. Uh, the one that I like best, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about it, is what uh, some people have called the voracity effect. When there isn't much out there to be spent, when the country is relatively poor, when the price of oil in the case of an oil producer is low, well, lobbies are not very active. There's not much to be fighting about, and given that lobbying is costly, you only mount big lobbying campaigns when? Well, when there's something to grab at the end of the day. And therefore, you find that the fight over resources intensifies when times are good. And that suggests that if you have that kind of political economy game and you have the institutions that make that possible, what's going to happen when the price of oil goes up and you're rich, then people are going to spend more. Not only are, you going, are they going to spend that additional income that comes from the price of oil, they're going to spend more than that. That's what you see there because they're, in fact, running a deficit and borrowing. So you have extreme pro-cyclicality. Once upon a time, when I was an academic before my four years, actually four years in the government and one year in a campaign, so it was five years away from the academy, I spent a great deal of time writing models that uh, explain this kind of behavior. And what I just told you about the veracity effect and the way I phrased it, of course, would probably cause you to ask a lot of questions. Well, who are these groups? Why are they lobbying? What's the structure of decision making? Why do they behave in that way? And if you make suitable assumptions, for instance, if you think of a country where there is fragmented decision making, so that the extreme case of this is, of course, a federal republic in which different municipalities or different uh, provinces or different states make spending choices. Argentina is a good example. Brazil is a good example. Then each will set spending on the basis of his or her own decisions or needs, but there are spillovers to a general federation because typically there's something called the national debt. And if you're in Argentina, when you spend too much and local resources don't uh, suffice to meet that spending, what do you do? You call up the federal government, you say, I have a problem, here is you know, my debt, right? And that happens again and again and again. Colombia is another example of this. But even short of a federal country, even in a country with a centralized government, ministers, spending ministers, tend to wish to do what? If you're the health minister, what do you want to do to maximize expenditure in health? And if you're the defense minister, what do you want to do to maximize expenditure on defense? And depending on what the budget institutions are like, you could well have a situation in which each minister is going about maximizing his or her own objective function, and the equilibrium is one in which too much is spent. So you can construct games of that sort, and I spent a lot of time writing suitably fancy games in which you develop sub-game perfect equilibria of the game among these N agents, et cetera, et cetera. The gist of it is that a political economy interaction of that kind is going to give you the two things 
that seem to be out there in the world. The first one is that there's a deficit bias, so you run down government assets or accumulate debt on average, independently of the cycle. And secondly, across the cycle, you do not behave the way you should. On the contrary, you spend too much uh, of any windfall and you don't have enough to spend during bad times. So this is one possible political economy story that will give you both deficit bias and pro-cyclicality. So that is the problem. If you ask me why is it that so many countries have fiscal policies that look like this, my story will be, well, they have a kind of institutional structure that gives rise to inefficient political interactions of this kind. If that is a problem, then the question is, well, what is the solution? What can you do about it? Or what do countries do? And again, I think you can distinguish between two ways of getting around that problem. The first one has to do with changing the way decisions are made. That is to say, if fragmentation is spillovers, if inefficient interactions across these groups is at the center of the problem, well, then change the way the decisions are made. In particular, if fragmentation is a problem, well, reduce fragmentation, centralize economic policy making, centralize fiscal decision making. So one way to centralize it, which of course if you've ever been a finance minister is something you like very much, um, give the finance minister more power, right? A very good thing, indeed, right? Um, so that um, who is the only minister who internalizes all the externalities in the, in the jargon of economics? Well, the finance minister, right? The defense fellow worries about defense, the health person worries about health, the education person worries about education, but the one person who worries about the budget that includes them all is the finance minister. If you have a problem of fragmentation across subnational governments, well, increase the power of the central government vis-a-vis -vis the subnational governments. And reforms in countries which historically had this problem, again, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia being good examples, moves in that direction. And in addition, another, way, another thing that you can do is to change the balance of power in budget making between the executive and the legislature. Why is this? Because the legislature is a body with lots of people. And when you have lots of people, they have different interests and spillovers and inefficient interactions across them are almost inevitable. The executive is more centralized, not entirely so. If you've been in a cabinet ever, you know that cabinet ministers don't get along necessarily and they have their own desires, but more or less, the, the executive is rather more centralized than the legislature. So an institutional setup that gives the executive more power in budget making will typically help you get around these problems. What do I mean by that? I'll give you one example from the, from the Chilean story. Something that makes the life of the finance minister in Chile somewhat less atrocious than it is generally for any finance minister is that if you're a member of parliament in Chile, you can introduce any bill that you please except one that increases spending. Uh, and any bill that increases spending requires the sponsorship of the executive, which frankly um, reduced the number of gray hairs that I accumulated over the last five years. Another example of centralization um, is uh, a rule that says you have 60 days to vote and amend the budget sent by the executive. But if at the end of 60 days you have not finished the amendment process, then whatever budget the executive sent initially is going to be the law of the land. 
which also gets you around the problem that you know it's April and you still don't have a fiscal you know, a budget for the fiscal year. Happens in a lot of countries. Uh, in fact, it's about to happen in the U.S. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is not only a problem of emerging nations. So one school of thought is well, change the institutions. Another school of thought which may be complementary, but at least analytically we want to keep them separate, is one that says whatever institutions you have, they are unlikely to give you a good, reasonable outcome over the cycle. It's just too messy, too political, the temptations are too many. So you've got to bind fiscal policymakers with some kind of a rule. And of course, rules, I will tell you in a minute, are the rage. You know, the EU is selling rules, the IMF is selling rules, everybody's selling rules. One country that got there early was Chile. We've had a rule since 2001. So Chile is an example of both of these things. And I want to tell you a little bit about what went on there. Not so much, again, as an advertisement for Chile, but simply because I think Chile illustrates some of the potential of these two approaches, but perhaps also some of the pitfalls. I mentioned already some of these possible institutional innovations. Let initiative rest with the executive when dollars and cents are involved. This is a very important one. Set spending ceilings before you discuss allocation, as opposed to discussing allocations and then letting the spending ceiling be whatever is simply the residual of individual spending choices. Play strict deadlines for parliamentary approval. Parliamentarians tend to be more sensible if they know they have to stay up till five in the morning. Um, and set up costly status quo rules so that if what the parliament is trying to do is not done in a certain way or by a certain time, you default to something like the executive's proposal or the previous year's budget. The extent to which different countries have mechanisms of this sort, of course, varies vastly across countries. Some, like Chile, are massively centralized, some are not. So there are people, a fellow by the name of Jürgen von Hagen in Germany has done it for Europe, and Alberto Alesina of Harvard and a bunch of co-authors have done it for Latin America. They've gone out and tried to come up with indices of fiscal institutions, and they've arranged them according to how hierarchical they are. And all these things that I've been talking about are hierarchical. They make the executive you know, more powerful than the rest of the government. And within the executive, what a great thing, they make the finance minister more powerful than the rest of the cabinet. So if you look at um, the index for Latin America, uh, you'll see that there are big variations. And uh, Chile is by far the most centralized, actually not by far, not anymore. Mexico and Jamaica and uh, Colombia is a funny case because Colombia is centralized by some accounts, but the provinces have a lot of power. So Colombia is probably, if I had to simply you know, assign a place for it, I would put it lower down the scale. And then you have countries like Peru or Bolivia or the Dominican Republic where fiscal policy making is very fragmented. There are lots and lots of players. Well, you might ask, well, so what? Who cares? Does it make any difference? Well, people have gone out then and used that index for what economists like to do to run regressions, right? Uh, I'm not going to show you a regression, but I will show you a scatter plot. Um, so I can only talk about correlation, not about causality of any kind. So here is the index of budget institutions, and here is one measure of budget performance. That is the average uh, government balance. And you know the 
higher up you are, the bigger your surplus. So if you're up there to the right and to the, you know, to the northeast, you're a country with very centralized institutions and a very strong fiscal performance. And the country on the red, you know, with a little red dot is Chile. So Chile is a country that is both very centralized and on average has had pretty good uh, fiscal performance. So this would seem to matter. So one way, therefore, to get around the problem of fragmentation, which leads to deficit bias and to pro-cyclicality, is make your institutions more hierarchical. Now, if you put it that way, of course, you realize right away that that is a political non-starter in many countries, right? You go around and you tell ministers that you're going to make them less powerful. Uh, they're probably not going to like this. If you go to parliament and you say to parliament, I'm going to make you less powerful, and the executive will really be calling all the shots, no, you're probably not going to get very far. And if you're in a federal republic and you go to the states and you tell them, I'm going to reduce your power vis-a-vis -vis the central government, you're probably not going to get very far either. So, you know, nice work if you can get it, but um, probably you cannot. So what is the alternative? What else can you do? Well, the other thing that you can do is say, I take my institutions as given, but I come up with some binding set of arrangements to prevent whoever the bad fellow is, the parliament, the provinces, the states, prevent them from having this deficit bias. So a rule, a fiscal rule, is nothing but a set of constraints on the deficit and a system for generating those constraints. And there's a vast literature over the last, you know, decade or so in the academic world uh, talking about these rules. Alan Drayson from Tel Aviv is one good example. There's also a vast literature in the IMF. The IMF is very excited about this. And in fact, 80 countries in the world today, according to the IMF's uh, latest count, have some kind of fiscal rule in place. So 80 is a lot, right? it's a very big number. Now, before you conclude that there are 80 countries with very sound and very detailed procedures for fiscal policy, you should know that, that you know, to be on that list, to qualify as one of the 80, you simply have to tell the IMF, I have a budget rule. Uh, what it is, how it works, you know, how binding it is, how respected it is, you know, is a mood question. If you go to the IMF and give them a hard time about the number 80 and you say, come on, 80 is silly. There, no, there, there aren't 80 countries in the world where you have binding budget rules in operation. The IMF will quietly and only into your ear admit that there are perhaps eight countries that really have fully operative uh, budget rules, particularly budget rules of a kind that I will be interested in, budget rules that make cyclical adjustments. And to get ahead of my story, a budget rule that makes a cyclical adjustment, one that says, I'm going to correct your income for the place you happen to be in the cycle. Because naturally, when you're booming, your income is unnaturally high. When you're in a recession, your income is unnaturally low. So I want to ask, what is your normal income? What is your long-term revenue? Only eight countries of the world do that. Um, Chile is one. In Europe, the country that gets all the praise is Sweden uh, for having the most binding rule. Is that a question, sir? Of the eight, uh, the UK is one. Um, I, 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 uh, in fact, if you read, uh, if you read the IMF paper which they wrote two years ago, in fact. 
the UK gets very high marks for its strict adherence to these fiscal rules. You be the judges of that. I do not feel qualified to opine on that. Um, a couple of the other Scandinavian countries are in there. Norway, certainly, because you know, they've got the highly fluctuating uh, price of oil. So Norway does it. Denmark does it to some extent, too. Germany has a new rule in place uh, recently. So the bulk of the countries are in Europe. Among emerging markets, the only country with a consolidated rule is Chile. There are a few others that are moving in that direction. Colombia has a bill before the Colombian Congress to set one up. South Africa is thinking about it. And then countries that are talking about whether it will happen or not are all over the place. Kazakhstan is talking about it. Nigeria is talking about it. Ghana, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What do these countries have in common? They are oil producers. And as I will tell you in a minute, these rules are particularly important if you're a producer of commodities because your income fluctuates around very much. And as I mentioned at the outset, Ireland is supposed to be getting one. That is part of the EU-Irish agreement. So we will know in a few days which route Ireland is going to follow. So that's the state of play. Many countries um, are talking about rules. Not many countries are actually applying rules. And very, very few, practically none, have had the rules in place long enough to be able to say this is how they work. In fact, the Swedish example, you know, Sweden set up a fiscal council and all kinds of very fancy things, but the fiscal council was only set up in 2007, so there's no track record yet. It's very hard to say it works, it does not work, it's a good idea, it's a bad idea. One of the few countries in the world that has had such a system in operation for uh, nearly a decade is Chile. So let me tell you a little bit about Chile. The first thing that I would love to tell you about Chile, but if I did, I would be misrepresenting the truth. I would love to tell you that things were really awful until this enlightened government came into office and changed things radically, but that would not be true. It would not be true in the sense that Chile has had fairly good budget institutions, and I, 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 I you know, add the quotation marks because what to a finance minister is a good budget institution to many other people need not be. So hierarchical, centralized, non-fragmented, what have you. I showed you Chile at the very top of the index. And also because Chile already, uh, before the introduction of the rule in 2001, had fairly good fiscal performance. And before I go to the rest of the slide, let me show you a picture which I did not put together. This is part of a Harvard dissertation that is being written as we speak. The author is not Jeff Sachs, but a fellow called Michael Sachs, who's a graduate student at Harvard. This is the behavior of public debt in one, two, three, four, five countries that moved away from authoritarian rule. So the countries are Spain, Portugal, Greece, South Africa, and Chile. This is what happened to public debt before the democratic transition. This is the date at which you know, the dictator left or was forced to leave. And this is what happened to public debt thereafter. What is special? Well, in Spain, in Portugal, and Greece, democracy meant debt. In South Africa and in Chile, it did not, interestingly enough. And in South Africa, you see public debt trending downwards, although if you look at the, couple, the last couple of years, it's come back up again. And in Chile, it moved massively, massively down. Um, gross public debt was uh, close to 40% in 1990 when Pinochet left office. And as I will show you right now, gross public debt in Chile is almost zero. Um, 
depending on what your measurement is. But uh, if you use the most generous, most ex you know, uh, rigorous uh, measure, Chile has public debt of about 6 points of GDP. So first of all, not everything began in 2006 when this new enlightened government came into office. Chile had had pretty strong fiscal performance uh, in the year since the demise of the dictator. South Africa looks a lot like uh, Chile. And in fact, I've been to South Africa twice in the last year, and I'm helping him think about a possible fiscal rule uh, in Chilean style. South Africa and Chile have something in common, which is not captured in my model, but which is very evident if you spend any time in, in Johannesburg and, and Pretoria. These are governments that came into office after very long authoritarian regimes. And the biggest concern of the new regime in Chile and South Africa was, let us not screw things up. Um, and in Chile, of course, in the early 70s, fiscally, the last democratic regimes had screwed things up massively, spectacular, right? Chile had hyperinflation in 1973. We had a budget deficit of 14 points of GDP. Once upon a time, you said 14 points of GDP, people were very impressed, right? Uh, nowadays, you say a budget deficit of 14 points of GDP, and it, you know, it really doesn't impress anybody. Uh, but uh, once upon a time, that was really outrageous. 14 points of GDP, okay? So in Chile, there was a sense in 1990 when democracy returned that that was really silly. Let us not do that again. And in South Africa, uh, among many of the leading lights of the new democratic regime, you get the same sense. Certainly from Trevor Manuel, who's been the finance minister, pretty much all along. The other thing that um, was striking about Chile, of course, was that to bring that debt down, Chile had to run surpluses. And Chile ran surpluses very often. In fact, in the last 20 years since democracy's return in 1990, Chile had more years with a fiscal surplus than with a fiscal deficit. Uh, and some of those years, I will show you some pictures, the surpluses were big. Given this, you might ask, well, why did Chile need such a rule? Why are the Chileans doing all this you know, stuff if they don't have to? There are many reasons. Let me just highlight a few. On the economic front, we had good fiscal performance, but we had no medium-term framework for thinking about things. So fiscal policy was done on, a, on an annual basis. And if things went, went well in parliament that year, when the budget was approved, then the budget was sensible. But if the political environment was not so good, then, well, fiscal performance was not so good. But there was very little, if any, thinking about what should fiscal policy be doing for the next 20 years, given demographic trends, given the, the you know, growth in other potential liabilities, et cetera. Which takes me to my next point. Public debt that was documented and on the books was small, but we worried about two other kinds of contingent liabilities, which of course are present in most countries, pensions being one of them. In fact, the pension issue is much smaller in Chile than in most other countries because Chile has a privatized pension system. However, the pension system provides minimum guarantees, and if people begin retiring with very low income, the government has to chip in, and therefore that could become substantial. And Chile has also been you know, a very market-oriented economy. Chile has built much of its infrastructure over the last 20 years by means of private sector concessions. But how do you induce some Italian firm or French firm to come and build a road? You guarantee something, often minimum traffic. So if someday the trucks stop rolling, you know, somebody has to make up the difference, and that would be the Chilean government. So we worried a lot 10, 15 years ago about these contingent uh, liabilities, some of which can be big. 
And within, you know, the realm of the political, um, the fact that things had been reasonable in the Congress in the past did not guarantee that they would be. And in particular, as democracy got more comfortable with itself, business as, as usual began to take, you know, to settle in. And business as usual in most countries is one where political, you know, economy is not friendly to the budget. So this was in some sense a preventive move to prevent Chile from going down the road that so many other countries have traveled in terms of fiscal deficits. So what did Chile do? And I don't want to go into too much detail here. Uh, you know, I could spend the afternoon telling you about it, so I will try to be brief. Chile did two things. Set up a system for targets of the flows, that is to say, the deficit. And then we saved some money, and we had to decide what we do with that money. And we created a set of institutions uh, to that effect. What is the budget rule in Chile? It's really quite simple. First of all, it is a structural or cyclically adjusted budget rule. So you worry about two things. First of all, GDP, where output is today relative to the long trend. And secondly, you worry about the price of copper, because copper is important to the economy. Not as important as most press accounts would have you believe, Copper revenues are only about 16% of the total budget, but they move around a lot, so they make a big difference. How do you insert these things into the budget? Well, the key thing, from a political point of view, is that you do not want the government making projections. So we have a system whereby we have two committees of 15 independent experts. They meet every July. You lock them up in a room for a couple of weeks, and they come out and say, we think that the price of copper for the next 10 years is going to be whatever. And there's another set of, you know, of experts, and they say, we think that the trend of growth of GDP is 5.5%. And so that gives you a gap between today's GDP growth and the actual uh, level. Then you put that into a big set of, you know, set of equations, and that gives you an estimate of your structural or long-term income. And the rule simply says, spend that income or spend something close to that income. And the reason why I say something close is that for a while, in fact, we did not have a balanced budget rule. We had a small surplus rule. That is to say, the committees would issue these numbers. The equations would say, your long-term income is 23.5 billion US dollars. And rather than spending the 33.5, you'd spend maybe 1% of GDP less, so that over time, debt would come down. And that's exactly what Chile did for more or less a decade. An interesting thing is that for the first six years of operation of the system, this was not a legal constraint. That is to say, the government did not go to parliament at the outset uh, and say and, and requested authority to apply the rule. The government simply began applying it to itself. You can always do that, right? You can always self-impose a rule. And only in 2006, after this had been rolling for almost six years, did we go to Congress and say we would like to make this a legally established binding system. And even then, the law is binding on most regards, but the actual size of the surplus you target is not set by law. So any coming, incoming administration is free to say, I want to have a small deficit or, a, or, a, or balance or a small surplus. And in fact, over time, we changed that surplus. We had a 1% target for about seven years. Uh, but with that, we realized that we were not only running down debt very quickly, we were running out of debt, uh, but we were also beginning to accumulate assets. So we hired a bunch of smart people from Yale, in fact, and we asked them, 
given plausible assumptions what will happen to net assets, and they told us that we were going to be, you know, looking like a Gulf Emirate within, you know, five years, and that didn't seem to make a lot of sense, so we cut the target from 1% of GDP to 0.5%. Then the big crisis hit, and of course, you know, then it didn't make any sense whatsoever to have a budget surplus target, so we went to zero, and in fact, in the end, we had a bit less than zero, and that's one of the things that Chileans fight over because there's been some discussion politically about exactly what corrections you have to make within a crisis, et cetera, et cetera. I'll turn to that in a minute. Um, so if you follow a rule like that, then you save. Uh, you're going to have big budget surpluses, and you've got to decide what you're going to do with the budget surpluses. And again, we went to Parliament and we got authorization to do the following thing. Whenever you have a fiscal surplus, at least 0.2 of GDP, and at most 0.5, you put into a pension guarantee fund so that, and the money you put into that pension fund you cannot touch for a decade. Why? Because over a decade Chileans are going to age, like, just like Europeans. In fact, Chile has very, you know, does not have developing country demographic patterns. It has really, we're very advanced in demographic transition. Chileans are old, so the population is aging very quickly, and therefore, in, you know, in a decade or so, we will be suffering from the Italian problem or the Spanish problem of lots of old people retiring and somebody's got to pay the bill. Then, the next 0.5% of GDP of surplus, you hand over to the central bank. Why the central bank, you may wonder, for one very simple reason, because Pinochet bankrupted the central bank by using the central bank to save the banks, right? Again, once upon a time when I said that, you know, you had to save banks and spend 7% of GDP, people would say, ah, oh, this is really extraordinary. Nowadays, you know, having a banking crisis and spending 7% of GDP is absolutely nothing, right? Uh, so it doesn't seem quite as impressive as it used to. But the gist of it is, we ended up with a central bank which has negative equity and somebody's got to put up the cash, so the government has been doing that. And then whatever you have above and beyond 1% of GDP in surplus, you put into a stabilization fund. Results. This, that, those were the rules. Let me tell you a bit about the results, and then I want to move on to the lessons, and then I will stop. The results. So the first result is that if pro-cyclicality was a concern, well, Chile seems to have done fairly well at avoiding pro-cyclicality. This is the price of oil, sorry, the, of oil, the price of copper, and this is the Chilean surplus if you're above zero and deficit if you're below zero. And so that is the exact opposite of the Mexico picture I showed you earlier. Whenever copper is high, you run surpluses. Whenever copper is low, you run deficits. That looks very pretty there on the picture. I have to say that back in, you know, this is 2006, 2007, 2008. Back in those years, this was not a very popular policy in Chile. In fact, I found myself being burned in effigy regularly and um, um, I was hosting an IMF conference in Santiago and protesters showed up with a large doll with my face pasted on it and proceeded first to kick it around the room and then to set it on fire, which of course, you know, managed to get the attention of people. Um, uh, the Norwegian minister was there. We had invited the Norwegians because they really invented all of this. Right? So we were saying to the Norwegians, we have a fund like yours, and we had persuaded the Norwegians that Chile was a quiet and well-behaved country, and suddenly 300 people burst into the room and you know, began setting dolls on fire. So you know, we, Chile did not seem quite Scandinavian anymore. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but the numbers are not bad. The numbers are quasi-Scandinavian. Uh, Second thing is that, um, I've mentioned this already, but I haven't shown you the picture. This was um, public, net public debt 
40% of GDP in 1990. Uh, by 2006, Chile was a small net creditor. We were a largest net creditor before the crisis, and even after the crisis, Chile remains a net creditor. Uh, so this puts Chile in the company of very few countries, um, Singapore being one, Norway, of course, being another, Switzerland, um, more close. New Zealand doesn't do too badly, by the way. Uh, another very good example of a sound fiscal policy. And we have managed to put together a fund which is fairly large. Uh, at the peak, the stabilization fund had uh, almost exactly $20 billion. Chile has a GDP of about 200 billion, so this is almost exactly 10% of GDP in cash. Now, what was the advantage of having this fund is that when Lehman Brothers fell and when capitalism was coming to an end and when you know, we couldn't get any sleep, we had a fairly large pile of cash upon which to draw to finance uh, fiscal policy during the crisis. So that is the amount we withdrew, almost you know, nine billion during that period. And this, in fact, I think, has had some advantages for Chile. One advantage is that over time, volatility of all kinds has come down a lot. This green thing here, actually, no, I'll focus on the red. The red is the volatility of output. In the 80s, volatility of output was very large. In the 90s, it went down, and in the decade after that, it went down even more. And if I show you the picture all the way to 2010, which I had, but somehow the computer aided, um, you would see that volatility has gone even further down. So if you're worried about pro-cyclicality of fiscal policy augmenting the volatility of output, Chile has done fairly well. And something that is very hot today in emerging markets, places like Indonesia or Russia or Brazil or Colombia think about this all the time. It also helps Chile prevent massive real exchange rate misalignment as a result of the boom in copper. The standard problem in a middle-income country that produces commodities is that uh, oil goes up, coffee goes up, tin goes up, suddenly you're rich, and because you're rich, your exchange rate becomes very strong and you are condemned to producing that and that alone because at that constellation of the prices, no other product is in fact profitable. And that is not a good thing. We know that that is, of course, the Dutch disease. We didn't invent it in Latin America. The Dutch got there first. So the question is, when you have these copper booms, what can you do to fiscal policy to cushion the blow? And in Chile, I think we did fairly well. This is the period of the copper boom. So if I put the price of copper in here, you get something like that. And this is the real exchange rate, that is to say, some index of how competitive the currency is. And this is the average for the real exchange rate since 1985. And what is striking, at least to me, is that in spite of the copper boom, the real exchange rate has remained more or less at its average of the last 25 years. That's not a very scientific statement. Economists worry a lot about equilibrium exchange rates and what have you. But given that we can never agree on what is the equilibrium exchange rate, it is much better to simply look at the average. And if you look at the average over the last 20, 25 years, we're almost dead spot on the average. Well, actually, this is, a, this is only December 2009. If, in fact, you looked at the current number, the exchange rate appreciated uh, further. So that uh, uh, Chile is beginning to suffer from, uh, you know, a lot of people are worrying about Dutch disease. But the point is that in spite of billions and billions coming in, we were able to escape at least massive misalignment of the exchange rate. And finally, we were in a position, Chile was in a position to carry out a fairly aggressive stimulus policy in response to the crisis. 
more spending, tax cuts, money for public enterprises. I will not bore you with the details. Uh, I will show you this picture, however, which shows that, um, and apologies, this is in Spanish, but you know, this is the time of globalization, so we're all multilingual, right? Um, this is the reduction in interest rates in response to the crisis. So if you're out here, if you're Turkey, Turkey is the country in the world that cut interest rates by the most. And this is the size of your fiscal stimulus. So the biggest uh, in the world was Russia. This is IMF. Uh, second was Korea. Third was Saudi Arabia. Fourth was Chile. So the farther to the northeast you are, the larger or the more stimulative or the more aggressive your combination of monetary and fiscal policy. And Chile is really kind of unique in being out there as a country that could do both very, very aggressively. And to some extent, this is a tribute to the kinds of institutions that the country was able to build. So enough about Chile. Let me just tell you a little bit about what I think I have learned and what I think the world is beginning to learn about these fiscal rules as ways of getting around the pro-cyclicality and the deficit bias problems. And in particular, I want to ask, well, what are the unsolved issues? What are the questions that arise from these experiences? What should we be thinking about? And I have four points. Rather than telling you what they are, I will jump right in. The first point is that if you're going to be worrying about cyclically adjusted budgets, you've got to worry about what it is that you're adjusting for. If you do what Chile does, or if you do what the OECD uh, suggests that you ought to be doing, you correct for very few things. In particular, the OECD simply corrects for output. If you're in a boom, boom defined as average output growth higher than trend, then you correct that and you make some correction for revenues, and that's about it. In Chile, we go one step further and we take that plus the price of copper and also the price of molybdenum. But it turns out that if you look at the world, there are many other things that drive revenue and which create artificial booms and busts in government revenue which are not being incorporated into the corrections that the OECD does or the corrections that Chile does. And um, this is a very timely topic. It is a very uh, topical thing because countries like Spain and like Ireland are thinking about this all the time. And let me go, you know, illustrate the point with the Irish example. If I, you know, back in 2007, both Spain and Ireland had budget surpluses, right? And in fact, if you go back and read IMF documents and if you read OECD documents, both Ireland and Spain are in fact complemented by the IMF for their fiscal rectitude, right? They had debt to GDP ratios of the order of 30-40%, not too bad. And in 2007, they both had surpluses. So at first glance, Spain was not a southern European country with good weather, but a northern European country with, you know, moral fiber, right? And Ireland, of course, is far enough north so that you always knew that Ireland had lots of moral fiber, and that was suggested by the data. Big fiscal surplus. However, we know today that that fiscal surplus was in some sense artificial. Why? because very much linked to unsustainable activities. In the case of Ireland, it was linked to something that bubbled up and then came crashing down property prices. And it was also, and therefore you were collecting revenue that at some point was going to go away. 
And it was also very much linked to the fact that Ireland and Spain, before the crisis, were running very large current account deficits. And uh, when you run a large current account deficit, you're importing a lot. And typically, those imports give you revenue, not tariff revenue in this case, because it is very, tariffs are, are very low. But those you know, imports pay VAT in many countries. And therefore, when you're an unsustainable boom, which translates itself into a current account deficit, you're going to have the government awash with money. And therefore, if you simply look at the headline figure, you might conclude that the country's doing well. If you do the OECD correction, you would still conclude that the country's doing well, but in fact, the country's not doing so well. So debate number one today is, if you're going to do a budget rule, and if you're going to carry out cyclical adjustments, what kind of cyclical adjustments should you be carrying out? Debate number two is more of a technical debate, it's something that economists can get very excited about. Uh, and it is something that today is actually quite a hot debate in Chile, so I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about it. A cyclical rule is a rule that corrects for the ups and downs of the economy. In spirit, it tries to get you close to what economic theory says your fiscal policy ought to be doing. What is that? something called the Permanent Income Hypothesis, PIH, associated with a man called Milton Friedman, you've probably heard of. Milton Friedman said, basically, you should eat your permanent income and you should save windfalls. You should save the transitory component in income, right? And there are uh, fancier versions of that, uh, some of UK provenance, the Ramsey rule and all of that, right? So the question is, if you're doing cyclical adjustments, how closely are you mimicking the ideal permanent income hypothesis way of carrying out fiscal policy? Well, you're getting there part of the way, but not fully, because there are other things that you also have to correct for or take a stance about if you're really going to replicate the permanent income uh, way of looking at things. And in particular, one issue that arises is the treatment of temporary changes in policy. And we Chileans have thought a lot about this. During the crisis, Chile increased expenditure, but also put into place temporary tax cuts, and which were legislated to be temporary. So the law said this rate goes down from 10 to 5 for 18 months, and then it goes back up automatically. If permanent income is what you're going to be having for the next 30 years, the fact that you cut a particular tax rate for a year or a year and a half does not really alter your permanent income. So according to that logic, it should not alter your definition of long-term revenue and therefore it should not reduce your capacity to spend. But if you follow simply the mechanical adjustment, well, the mechanical adjustment does not include changes in policy. You should not make the correction for that. So different ways of treating such policy changes within a rule are going to give you very different estimates of what in fact the cyclically adjusted stance is or what the structural budget surplus is. And in Chile, for in the years of the, in the 2009, different estimates range from 0.5 to 3.1 or something like that, depending quite crucially on how you treat these things. So, you know, this may seem like an exotic issue, but it really has to do with a deep economic point, namely, can you hope to have a fiscal rule that gets close to the logic of having the government spend long-term income and long-term income only? Issue number four is, sorry, issue number three has to do with how counter-cyclical rules should be. 
most rules that are in place today in the world call themselves counter-cyclical, but are really acyclical. Because if you're doing a simply correcting for the economic cycle, you're eating what you have on average. And therefore, you're not eating more than average in bad times or less than average in good times. So de facto, they are acyclical. How do you make them more counter-cyclical? Well, if you, you know, look at theory, Eduardo Engels from Yale has written a bunch of papers in which he argues that you know, the optimal thing, fairly obviously, is to have aggressively counter-cyclical policy. But in practice, how do you do it? A policy that, in fact, involves different patterns of behavior at different points across a cycle is going to be a very complicated policy. And the beauty of some of these policies that are in place today in places like Sweden and Chile is that they're very simple. They pass what I like to call the taxi driver test. You get into a cab and you say to the taxi driver, so how do you feel about the budget? And he says, yes, you know, we're, you know, we're getting close to our target of 1% of GDP, right? Uh, um, if, you know, if the rule simply is like that, all cab drivers in your city of choice will know about it. But if there's four different procedures which vary across the cycle, it's going to be a mess. And messes of that kind typically are not very politically legitimate. The other issue that arises in practice is if you're going to have a very heavily countercyclical rule with different patterns of behavior across the cycle, well, who gets to say we are in phase B, we're in phase C? Presumably, you want some independent referee saying that, and there the issue of introducing independent fiscal boards crops up. Sweden has one, Ireland will probably have one. Germany is, I understand, I don't know the details, in the process of putting one together. Fiscal boards are a bit like independent central banks. Central bankers love independent central banks. Uh, politicians don't get particularly excited about them. So whether they will be politically feasible, given that they constrain the power of parliaments, is a big, big issue. And last but not least, um, if you're going to have rules that survive across time, you have to be very careful as to what exactly you're proposing to do. And I don't want to get too technical, but let me just simply put it this way. Most fiscal rules in place today do not make an explicit distinction between ex ante and ex post. That is to say, it is one thing to say, I today target a fiscal surplus of 1% of GDP with all the cyclical adjustments. And uh, you show that you do, and you show that ex ante your spending commitments are congruent with that. It is something else to let 12 months go by and have you know, the world economy move up and down, the exchange rate move up and down, the number of pensioners change because of this and the other, and suddenly you, know, you, you, you didn't get 1%. You got 0.5 or 1.5 or what have you. So if in fact your exposed result is different from your ex ante target, what do you do? Do you let it go? Do you look the other way? Do you fire the finance minister? Do you submit him to you know, ritual sacrifice? Uh, is it okay, et cetera, et cetera? Well, central banks, of course, have dealt with this problem for a long time because central banks in countries like the UK have had inflation targets for what, a decade now, decade and a half? And central banks understand that there's no way in the world that if they say our inflation target is 2%, they're going to hit 2% on the head all the time, right? So what do central banks do? They say, I'm going to hit 2% much of the time. And then they say something like, well, it's really not in every 12-month interval, but it is out 18 months. And some central banks even go further and say, and I'm going to have a band of 1% or 2% up or down, whatever. And they even allow themselves to 
be a little bit you know, unclear about the index that they're targeting. So sometimes it's CPI inflation, sometimes it's you know, CPI inflation minus the price of energy or minus the price of foodstuffs or what have you. So central banks more or less have solved this problem. In the fiscal policy realm, this problem is only now beginning to be identified. Do you want a fiscal rule with bans? Do you want a fiscal rule with targets and move around? Or if not, do you want a fiscal rule which is simply a point estimate, a number, and then somebody who exposed says, well, they were reasonable in not meeting it. And again, that means that you may need an independent board. Um, but even the independent board will not get you out of the hot water because the independent board may plausibly have power to get you into a special situation, invoke a waiver in very special extreme cases. But even short of very extreme cases, the world moves around a lot. Exchanges move around a lot. Everything moves around a lot. So on average, even in quasi-normal situations, you're not going to be hitting targets all the time. And therefore, you need to have the kind of leeway that central banks have, but which fiscal authorities do not have. So there is much thinking going on on fiscal rules. I think they have played an important role. I think they will continue to play an even more important role. But this is an industry that is in its infancy. It is going to be a growth industry. So I invite you to be part of it. Thanks very much.